The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome, everyone, to the first meeting of our Eightfold Path program. So uh, today we're going to talk about right view, which is the first factor in the path. And uh, I'd just like to say a couple of logistical things first. You may have received, we are recording these sessions, and you received an email that pointed you to the wrong place for them, and we're sort of sorting that out. So you can look for a group email in the next week or so when we figure out where you can access these talks, but they will all be recorded. And hopefully those of you who are in the mentoring aspect of the program have all connected with your mentors by now. If you have questions about that, come and see me on the break and I'll see what we can sort out. So I'm Chris Clifford and I'm coordinating these monthly meetings. I'll be presenting at some of them and kind of emceeing some of them with guest speakers. Um, this is Bruni. She's an administrator of our program. You may be getting emails from Bruni on various subjects as the year goes by. And I'm very pleased to welcome Susan Essekel as a co-speaker today. Um, Susan's been involved in IMC since the late 90s, about the same time I started. And uh, she was the president of our board during a very big transition time we acquired this building and did the first remodel, so she's uh, an old-time uh, leader of our community. And then she got very involved in the chaplaincy work, in the chaplaincy program, and she served as a chaplain in a couple of places, and she's currently the manager of spiritual care at San Francisco General. So I'm very pleased that she was able to make time to come down and join us today and help us explore right view. So I'd like to begin with a guided sit. So we'll sit for about 15 minutes and I'll offer a little bit of guidance relevant to the subject. So just find a posture that's relaxed but supports awakeness. So an upright spine, a posture of dignity and presence for what's happening. You might just scan through your body and see if you're holding any tension or stiffness that you could let go of. Checking in with the mind, noticing what trains of thought are going through your mind. Noticing how you're relating to those thoughts. Are you carried away with them? Are they easy to let go? Just settling back into noticing the flow of arising sensations, mental thoughts and reactions. Not trying to do anything. Not trying to make anything happen. Not trying to stop anything from happening. 
trying to analyze or figure out what's happening. Just very simply noticing the sensations, breathing in, breathing out, pressure of your bottom on your seat, your feet on the floor. Just resting in this flow of arising, changing, passing phenomenon. Resting is just knowing what's happening as it's happening. Resting with the light of awareness turned on so that you know that you know. What's happening at the six sense doors, the five physical senses and the mind? Hearing, feeling, maybe some seeing internally or seeing the darkness of your closed eyes. Some of these sensations may be pleasant. Some of them may be unpleasant. Some of them may be neither pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Noticing any tendency to try to make something happen, to try to make something stop happening. Just notice that, if that's starting to occur. Oh, that's what's happening. We don't need to try to stop those actions, and we don't need to try to pursue them. We can just notice them.
And perhaps noticing if there's commentary going on in the back of the mind. It's fine, you can just go on in the back of the mind. If it becomes something very engrossing, evaluating, this is a good sit, this is a bad sit. I'm glad to be here. I'm sorry to be here. Any kind of judgment and interpreting of what's going on. Just noticing that as the thinking activity of the mind. The more clearly we see it, the less momentum it has to pull us away from the present into the world of thinking and analyzing. Just coming back to the simple sensations of breathing in, breathing out. All the little feelings that arise throughout the body hearing. So there are simple sensory events, hearing, breathing. There's whether we experience them as pleasant or unpleasant. And there's how we react to that feeling. Are we tensing up a little around perhaps unpleasant sensations or sounds? Just noticing what's happening. What are the habits of your body and mind? Are we simply here, receiving what's happening moment to moment?
is the sound of my voice calling you back from the mind having wandered off somewhere else. Just notice, oh, wandering mind, coming back, reconnecting with the here and now, with the felt sense of the flow of experience. Simply what's happening and how are we relating or reacting to it? How caught up are we in reacting? Can we notice that and simply reconnect with the simplest possible experience of just what's happening, just what it feels like. How it begins, changes, lasts a little while, and something else occurs. Next in-breath. Next sound. We don't have to make anything out of it. open, not grasping at, not pushing, not trying, not pushing away, but awake, knowing. find ourselves lost in thought, not adding judgment to that. It's simply the mind thinking. And when we realize it, here we are, awake again.
So just a sense of ease with the flow of sensations, the mind coming and going. Sitting in the midst of everything, no need to stop it or manipulate it, no need to analyze it, just being at ease with life as it is flowing through us, as us. So our plan for the day is that uh, I will offer a fairly short Dharma talk on what are the teachings about right view so that we understand what the Buddha, the Buddhist teachings are on this subject essentially. And uh, then we'll have a breakout session where we'll discuss a question that flows from what I said. And then we'll take a break. And then Susan will focus a little more on the Four Noble Truths, which is the core of the understanding of right view. And I'm sure somewhat in light of her experience uh, in the chaplaincy work. And then she'll lead a breakout session relevant to that. We'll have a little bit of time for general question and answers. And uh, that will be our afternoon. We'll finish about 3.30. So, right view, that could be a kind of a intimidating title for depending on your background and where you're coming from. So I want to say a little bit about what's meant by view and what's meant by right and how to hold this idea that this is the beginning of the path, starting out with right view. So first of all, what is meant by a view? Um, the Buddhist view of views is generally that it's not very useful to have what we conventionally consider views, beliefs, opinions, and holding on to these things tightly. So the, the uh, spirit of this practice is to look beneath and let go of uh, abstract thinking, arguing about 
you know, what happens after death, whether there is or is not eternal souls and worlds and so forth, and not to focus on that. And in fact, to notice how our everyday opinions, like I think I know what's going to happen, or this is my firm opinion about some political situation, the more firmly we cling to those and identify with those, the more difficulty we may have. Um, There's a very famous sutra, one of the Buddhist uh, discourses, number one in the long discourses, uh, where he goes through 62 possible views that people had in his day. The time of the Buddha was sort of like now, where there was a whole wide range of different opinions. You could walk into East-West Bookstore or walk onto the Internet and find thousands and thousands of views and opinions and what you should believe and not believe, and people arguing about it and philosophizing. And that was like his time. And so he went through these 62 common views in his time, like there is a, you know, soul, there isn't a soul, there's this kind of worlds. there are these other kinds of worlds, and there aren't any worlds, and there's no meaning to life whatsoever, and this is the meaning, and so forth. And he pointed out that each one of these is an interpretation that's based on some particular root, kinds of experience that somebody had some sensory experience and they had some thoughts about it and they grasped onto those and built a whole theory around it. And so he points this out over and over again. So there's a view of views which is that to minimize actually the views in your life. And this one view that that's a good thing to do and that practicing in this direct way is kind of the essence of what right view is. We can notice in our everyday life, and it's a very interesting exploration, what's your relationship to views and opinions? You know, how do you, how do you hold the need to be right, for example? You know, it's been an interesting exploration for me that I seem to be more afraid of being wrong than of being unkind sometimes. You know, it's really hard to look at that and to feel the tension in these areas. How much do you think you know what's going to happen? How sure are you? I know he's like that all the time. You know, I know he's going to say that. So it's very interesting to look at how attached we are to our views and, you know, as well as large... How how much do you reach for large-scale understandings of, you know, what life is all about and how... what's, What's motivating the reaching for those views and having those views? But we do need some way to orient ourselves, right? We need, we need to find some way to, uh, to figure out which way we're going to go. So there's another very well-known Buddhist discourse where he's talking to these people called the Kalamas. And they had also had a lot of visitors recently, like a sort of guest speaking series where everybody had come through and propounded their views. And then the Buddha came and they asked him, well, what do we do? All these people disagree. And the Buddha says, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement, by pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this person is our teacher, and that's what he says. But rather, when you know for yourself that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, and they're criticized by the wise, 
then you should abandon them. Okay? And likewise, when you know for yourself, these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. So it's very much see for yourself, but this passage is also sometimes overinterpreted as just do your own thing, you know, see for yourself. But notice that he's still evoking the wise, right? I mean, we, we can, if we just see for ourselves, we might be missing, you know, so it's realistic. You need, it's, you, it's something in you that recognizes what is wisdom. But, you know, once you feel that you've recognized that something is wise, then, you know, you need to take that view into account. So, since you're all here today, I think you sense something wise in the Buddha. So, you know, we'll listen to more of what the Buddha has to say about what right view is. But then, fundamentally, the instruction is to put it into practice and see for yourself if it leads to more stress and suffering or less stress and suffering. So... Just a little bit, I think it's pretty clear by now what right means. Right means that it's appropriate, suitable, skillful for the purpose of alleviating suffering. So it's, it's, always, it's something I really appreciate about the Dharma is that this, it's very clear that the Buddha posits that the ultimate concern of human life comes down to suffering and the possibility of the end of suffering. So if you look at it, almost everything else that we're trying to do or wanting to believe or wishing to believe, trying to make happen is in service of being happy and free and at peace instead of suffering and stressed and tense, right? So this is the issue and that everything else is to be looked at in light of whether it furthers this issue or it hinders this issue. So um, it can be a little bit instructive to look at what the Buddha considered the wrong views, the categorized the wrong views of his day. So they're divided traditionally into two categories. He says there's the tendency to eternalism and to nihilism. And eternalism is this grasping at things, something out there, some belief, some situation, some relationship, some religious system is going to do it for me forever. And it's going to last forever, and it's the thing that's going to satisfy me and make me happy. And uh, at the root of this is, you'll see, there's always something about I and me involved in there, right? That's why we care about these things being eternal, because they're going to take care of me forever. They're going to make me feel good forever. So um, there's this eternalizing and in fact even concepts, even our ordinary use of words is a little bit eternalizing. Whenever you find yourself saying, you know, you feel angry, oh, I'm such an angry person, right? You're feeling a little sad, oh, I'm, I'm always sad. I'll never be able to do that. How often do you talk to yourself like that? just as a result of something arising in the moment, you take it on as a characteristic of yourself, as if it was a permanent characteristic. That's a move toward this eternalizing, right? Um, and even 
concepts that we judge the world by. You know, we think we know what a word means and that it's got a reliable meaning. Like we can tell something about people by, you know, their skin color, their gender, their country of origin, any number of things that we think we can tell something about somebody because we think that word has a permanent meaning. But it doesn't. It doesn't have these kind of permanent implications. It's always referring to a different situation. So right view is not grasping at the level of words and concepts and abstract meaning, but always trying to see through that to the particular in this moment and what's going on with it and how are we relating to it. So nihilism is kind of the opposite. It's a bit of a reaction to that. You might realize somebody might have an experience of death or loss or realize that you know, it's not so easy to pin down a meaning of everything and then swing to the opposite extreme and actually take the idea of nothingness or emptiness and make that their view. And then they wind up in a sort of alienated, despairing position that there's no point in doing anything. Nothing means anything. You know, nothing is real. There are all kinds of extreme points of view that people fall into and fell into in the Buddha's time and still fall into today that can be categorized as a more nihilistic point of view. So you might just notice in your own thinking, when am I grasping at, oh yeah, this is going to do it forever or this is a permanent feature of the situation or when are you thinking, oh, there's no point, you know, nothing means anything. So then you're falling into those views that are the classical definition of not right view. So right view, um, again, the main thing is it has suffering and its end as the ultimate concern of a human life. It's not involved with abstract propositions. It's trying to see beneath the concepts into the flow of experience and how, by seeing how we react to that flow of experience, how we can lighten up in the direction of less suffering or more suffering. So it's really adopting this view is a huge turning point in most people's lives because every other message for all time, really, we say our culture, but for every culture, for all time, is you look out there, you find the stuff you like, you try to get it, you try to pin it down, hold on to it, make it last. You notice the stuff you don't like, you try to be sure that never happens again, get as far away from it as you can, and that's the way to be happy, right? So this is, and there's not much said about what you can, what are you contributing, what is your relationship to what's happening, contributing to your suffering? And the Buddhist claim is quite radical that it can be up to 100%. (laughs) So that it's possible to actually come to the end, this is the Buddhist experience come to the end of suffering through working with your own reactivity because suffering is an inside job it's something that feels uncomfortable in our system and I'm I'm sure Susan may talk some more about you know we're not saying that difficult things don't happen it's not anymore about what happens to you it's about your reaction to it and how you tense up and you know, hurt yourself in response to what's happening. And then out of that hurt, you act out and contribute to the doing harm and, you know, difficult suffering that happens in the world. 
So you might look at um, I'm, some of these views that I'm mentioning that we might have now come from a wonderful book of Philip Moffat's called Dancing with Life. He has a section where he's talking about some common views that we might have, and I borrowed a few of those. So one of them is the tendency to measure the success of life, success of our lives by how many of our wants are met. You know, you could, it's a perfectly ordinary view. Are you having a nice life? Well, yes, I have a nice house. I have a nice family. I have a nice job. You know, we have lovely vacations every year and a full wine cellar, and I have a nice life, right? And that's fine. That's nice. But are you measuring your life that way? What if you're setting yourself up for, you know, possibly quite a bit of loss? There is potential to happen at any moment. And how set are you then, you know, for what might happen? So how much are you measuring your life by how much you get what you need? I mean, need is a different thing, but how much you get what you want. And because the mind can always throw up more wants, you know, and you, it's, it's a real, uh, it's really not helpful to inner growth to keep focusing on that. There's always more to want. There's always disappointment when you don't get it. And we're not really learning how much internally we, how much control we have over whether we're happy or not. So instead of, so what we're turning to is looking inside and we're really starting to watch on a very microcosmic scale this process of sensory input due to our conditioning and our habits, some thought arises, some reaction arises, we grab onto that and then we're pulled out of the present into planning how we're going to grab onto that if we like it, how we're going to get rid of it if we don't like it. And then we're anxious because what if we can't? We might not be able to have it. We might not be able to prevent it. And then we're off on anxiety and anger and suffering in general. Right? So when we really look, when we really notice, oh, this is the actual individual little moments of feeling without all that added onto it are a lot more tolerable than the whole load of meaning that we attach to them. So this is what we're directly seeing. Um, and right at the heart of all that is this activity of selfing. It's very helpful to see selfing as an activity, not as a noun, but more of a verb. So I'm eyeing and meeing and myeing about this. Okay, this is my, my anger. As soon as you think that thought, you've created the whole idea of ownership and you who own this instead of this, oh, this is anger, this is tension and heat arising in the moment. Um, when, the more that we are centered around this habit of identifying with things, the more it leads to this view of me and the world, me versus the world, me and my problems. Here I am and out there are all these problems. Or out there is all this stuff that's just there for me to use. and you know It's all there for my personal enjoyment and that's what the world is for. That point of view leads to acting from what's called the three root poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what we start acting from. When we act from those, we have to tense up in order to act from those because that's what it takes. And then we wind up acting in ways that cause harm in the world and cause set up more likely the world is not going to like us very much and then bad things will happen to us. And, you know, it's not 100% mechanical as far as what happens in the outer world, but it certainly sets up the tendency. The more you act out of greed and hatred, the more you get back what you put out, right? So one of Philip's... Uh, 
views that you might notice whether you have is that you're the star of your own movie. So how much are you the star of your own movie? You know? And comparing that just to... Reading a little bit about what he says about that here. It just says it very well. Once you renounce being the star of your own movie, you begin to see the unfolding of each scene and the movie as a whole from multiple perspectives. You don't forsake your role in the movie, but once you cease making it all about you, the movie creates less anxiety and you're more able to live from your core values. You know, so it's interesting to try, you know, being the director of a scene, not that you're really the director either, but, you know, how, how's everybody doing here in this scene? What are all the perspectives that are coming into this scene? So as we practice in this way, we see that there is an ethical dimension to these patterns, Right? So we see these patterns of what leads to suffering and what leads to not suffering. And by taking that as a focus, it's clear that there are ethical rules somehow built into our nature. You know, we're, we're uh, communal animals and we, we have uh, empathy that's there. And if we act according to that, then things go better. So there is this ethical dimension to the patterns of cause and effect that we can notice. When we act from these self-views, it hurts us and we're more likely to hurt others. When we don't, we suffer less, we cause less harm, and things go better for us and for the world. And we're learning that we can train the mind. Okay? That the mind can learn simply from observing cause and effect. That's how you learned everything when you were a child. You know, nobody taught you how to walk and all that. You learned by observing cause and effect. So the, the more you have the light on in the mind of seeing these patterns, the more you learn. Like touching a hot stove, you don't do that again. If you really see the connection between taking this to be me and mine and grabbing onto it and the pinch in the body, you know, the clenching up in the body, you realize, oh, that is actually the move that hurts. Before I thought that thought about how this is going to last forever, it wasn't so painful. Then I thought that thought and believed it, and right. And so you're noticing those patterns over and over again. Something starts to learn. Oh, don't have to go there. Now let's wait and see what happens. And then gradually that tends to work out better. And then it's learned. Oh, okay, got away with that one. Maybe it'll get away with it again. And so you try more, letting things go. So when we relax this selfing activity and we just rest in this knowing of the flow, the motives of greed, hatred, and delusion don't arise so much because they're all to do with this concept of self. Right? And then motives of generosity, kindness, and compassion are the natural responses that are free to arise when there's an appropriate situation. Right? So the free, mind, the free mind that has no preoccupations going on you know, someone falls down in front of you, you go help them up, right? Why wouldn't you? It's a natural human response that's blocked by self-concern being excessively bought into. So it's, this view is not buying into eternalism because it's so based on recognizing impermanence, that everything changes, that 
There's a constant arising and passing. So it's not based on grasping onto any one thing that's going to last forever. It's not nihilistic because there is experience. There's the flow of experience. There's not nothing. And we're able to live as that flow without suffering. And when we learn to do that, we see that it is meaningful because that's what leads to really the deepest peace and freedom and happiness. So there's a point, there's a purpose. The fourth noble truth of the path is part of the view. There is a path. The path is doable. All you need to do is observe a little more carefully what's going on. It's doable and it's worth it because it leads to less and less suffering. There's a really lovely uh, passage in the suttas that I like where he's, the Buddha is talking about a seed. He's very, uh, he, very agriculturally oriented in his metaphors often. And so he's talking about the difference between the amazing, you know, what they didn't know in those days, but how amazing. You take a seed of a bitter gourd and you plant it in the ground and you take a seed of a, something sweet, a gr- grape or rice, and you plant it in the ground. And the same water and soil and sunshine, out of this one comes this bitter fruit and out of this one comes sweetness. And it just depends, you know, it takes the same flow of input and turns it into something that's sweet or something that's bitter. And it all depends on the seed. And so he compares right view to that seed that transforms everything that comes through it into something that's sweet or something that's bitter. So, now these are the ideals of the path and it's also important again not to peg our minds to some ideal that you know oh I'm going to be all enlightened soon and keep looking there and not looking at where you are now you know there's you have to you can appreciate that it's going somewhere and let that feed your faith and confidence in doing the practice and the practice is to recognize you know what maybe less wise views am I actually acting on right now and recognize them and what what do I believe and what's my relationship to these things as they come up and as when you find yourself caught up in suffering what am I believing right now? It's a good question. You know, what am I I staking my whole sense of well-being on? If this doesn't happen or if this does happen we've made a huge deal out of our whole well-being depends on getting this job or you know, not losing that insurance policy or something. And, uh, you know, so, oh, we're staking too much on one occurrence, and that's not really the source of our well-being. So we can look at it that way. Okay. So, so we'd like you to... I'm going to have a little breakout session now, discuss this. So um, maybe you can get in groups of four, and we'll see how that works out. And if you aren't finding a group, you can walk toward the front, and then the orphans will find each other and make a group. And if it's an uneven number, we'll have a group of five or three or whatever works out. And when you get in your groups, I'll tell you what the questions are to discuss.
Okay, there's a pair here. Is anybody, are any groups short of anybody? Okay, one of you can go there. Is there a group of three back there? Can one of you, no, that's a group of four. Okay. Well, do you want to, Jim, are you participating? You have to leave, okay. All right. We'll just join a group, Liz, and we'll have a group of five. No problem. So you're a group of four. Okay. Okay. So how we'd like to do this is I'll pose a couple of questions and I'd like you to just go around in the group and each person contribute an idea or a reflection on this, a sentence or two, you know, a sentence or two or three. So we'll probably have time to go around several times, you know. So say something that comes to mind and then listen as the other people speak and see what you learn from what they have to say. Maybe that'll trigger some memory of yours and you'll have something slightly different to add next time it comes around. So it's not long turns, it's relatively short turns of going around and we'll just go around and round and round and see if the group comes up with some uh, interesting ideas in this process okay and we'll try not to get involved in a lot of crosstalk and responding to what people say but just listening practice when it's not your turn and we'll have a couple minutes at the end to discuss so in your practice so far or in your life so far, or in what I said in the last half hour, whatever works for you, have you noticed views that you hold that you were not even aware of before? And how tightly do you hold your views? What's some of your experiences of how you relate to your views and how that plays out in your life? So you can respond to either one of those questions as we go around. Have you noticed some views you're holding that you weren't even aware of? And what's your relationship to, how do you relate to your views and opinions? Okay. Okay, so would anyone be willing to share what came up for you there? Or if you have any questions so far about this factor in general, anything? We've got 10 minutes or so here to talk as a group. What kind of views and relationship to views did you it's always useful to hear what views people come up with because then you realize oh I, th I think that <laughs> yes and we'll use the mic because a lot of participants in this program are not local and they'll be listening on tape so just so that they can hear Bruni do you want to are you set would you like to take this around um, we talked quite a lot about the views we have about our own self I think it's on. Yeah, yeah. Speak right um, into it. And so, so I I um, ran into um, a lot of views about what I should be physically capable of, and mm -hmm. when when I had I have an injury, mm -hmm. um, and and an immense amount of suffering that came from not being able to, and therefore not being capable, not <laughs> being who I thought I was, mm -hmm. and um, and all from what, what isn't a very major injury, but um, but impacted my sense of self much more than much more than the physical world, I suppose. Right, um, right, yeah. right, yeah. 
Right. Yeah, that's often the most painful part is these hits to our self-image, you know, of what our idea of what we should be able to do. Thank you. Um, so I think we had a, um, a similar conversation about um, self. That That's... Maybe our, we didn't agree on it, but I think we might have agreed that our strongest view was of who we are and everything else either supports or doesn't, and we like or not like. And then we, people started to talk about some of their views. And the way it seemed to me was that, um, um, you get angry or hurt or you feel stronger, but really um, it's uh, to notice that, um, well, views are hard to see because I, I said this earlier, it's the water we swim in. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. when you feel anger, um, you want to feel like I don't want to be angry. But that's the water we're swimming in again, the me. It's mm -hmm. really to just know this is anger Right. This is what anger feels like. Right. This is what happiness feels like. Right. Um. Exactly. Right. Yeah, this is what anger feels like. This is what being angry at anger feels like. <laughs> you know, we can just... It's, we're not trying to stop it exactly. We're trying to take this middle way of seeing it. and Because to try to stop something is adding aversion to that. So it's this kind of... Transcending the situation and being able to see it for what it is. You know, we don't have to act from it if we notice it, but we don't have to try to stop feeling it. We can feel it and, you know, feeling some compassion for that part of us that's been hurt and is angry. You know, it's a natural, it's a natural arising like anything else. So feeling it, you know. And then just looking at where you want to go with it as much as possible. You know, do you want to act it out or can you turn to self-compassion, right? We found some commonality. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. um, and um, seeing a need to define ourselves from, our, from our work and how other people see us mm -hmm. through how hard we work or, um, you know, what our sort of image is in the world and, mm -hmm. and the difficulty of that and... and then changing views and trying to think, well, is really is that really that important? And you know, where should we be changing that, or or not be hung up in clinging to that view that your your worth is defined by other people? Thank you, thank you. That's a big one. Um, so we had a thread going about um, how we define ourselves in relation to other people, and who was responsible for who, and how we stood in a variety of different relationships with partners or with children, mm -hmm. and some of the views we held about that. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the points that we touched was how much of our views are really shaped by the culture and society we live in, the shoes and shouldn'ts, and then how you don't lose yourself in this who is yourself with all this and still fit in somehow because we do live in a society. Mm -hmm. 
We had a couple of interesting insights. One of them was how much we edit ourselves and second guess ourselves when we notice a view. But another was also um, we like to be goal oriented and reconciling being goal oriented so that we can act mindfully versus just kind of, you know, so having meaning Mm -hmm. and goals and and how that reconciles with having a view towards that. So Mm -hmm. Uh, we had a common thread going about how at different times in life we will have opinions or preferences or some ideas, but the suffering occurs when we hold on to them or we attach ourselves or this is a meaning or this is how it always has to be, this kind of inflexibility. Mm -hmm. And someone came up with the image of maybe uh, um, kids going, grabbing onto a ring and then the next ring, you just hold on to it for, you know, you just present it or or go by it and then ready to let it go um, instead of causing yourself suffering. Like it has to be like this or I am someone who is like this. Right. All right, we'll have a 10-minute break or a 8-minute break. <laughs> we'll come back about 2.20, and uh, Susan will speak some more about her experience with the Four Noble Truths.